In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Rob Walling about choosing a product idea that actually has a chance of succeeding. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 125. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wallen, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Rob Walling. How's it going, Rob? It's going really good, man. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So um, for anyone who's not familiar with you, I first kind of got introduced to you, I think, through the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast, which you've been hosting forever now. And I think at the time, um, you were sort of early off in the drip days, which is an email marketing automation uh, SaaS app, sort of like a MailChimp on steroids sort of thing that... Um, you built together with Derek Reimer, actually, who's been a guest on the show a, a couple times, um, and was eventually acquired by Drip. And now you're running a Tiny Seed, which is, I think you describe it as like an accelerator for bootstrap startups. Yep. Yep. That's right. And Drip was acquired by Lead Pages. You said it was acquired by Drip. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> it's a common. Uh, <laughs> That'd I be like interesting. That'd be an interesting way to exit your business if you could figure out a way to do that, like a perpetual motion machine for income. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yep. So that must have been around because, you know, Derek. So Derek was a contractor for me. Um, and he broke around on code in December of 2012. And then we really started sharing the story in 2013. Nice. And uh, so that must have been around that time frame. Yeah, awesome. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because, um, you know, you have sort of a long history of building different, building up sort of different software businesses, sort of leading up to drip, sort of being like your big sort of magnum opus, I guess. And now with um, Tiny Seed, you're doing a lot of work, uh, kind of working with other sort of, you know, small startups or individuals who have ideas that they've been working on and sort of trying to pick the ones that you think kind of have the most potential and uh, helping them get to where they want to get to. Um, So I thought something that would be interesting to talk to you about today is just like how as a developer working on a side project or looking for a side project, can you sort of find um, ideas that are worth building and, and what sort of things should people be looking out for to make sure they don't waste a ton of time building something that's not going to uh, go anywhere? How's that sound? Yeah, let's dig into it. Awesome. So I guess maybe the first question that I have for you is uh, I think like a, a situation that people find themselves in a lot, myself included, is you just kind of get that itch to build something, but you don't know what. And you spend a lot of time just like pulling out your notepad, brainstorming, trying to think of every possible thing that you can. Um do you find this to be like a productive way to look for product ideas at all? Or do you think you're better off making sure that you're building something that's sort of like knocks on your door instead of going out looking for ideas? I think it's a mix. I, I think that brainstorming, you know, the the outputs are only as good as the inputs. And if you're trying to brainstorm, like I used to, I used to try to think, okay, what could I build for lawyers? Or what could I build for designers? Or what could I build for this particular vertical? But I wasn't in that vertical. I wasn't mm-hmm. a lawyer myself. I didn't have a lawyer I could interview. I wasn't being exposed to their problems day to day. And so it was a fool's errand for me to think that I had any type of insight that would be beyond just a super cursory, you know, Google search through forums or whatever. Um, And that's that's not to say you can't. I mean, I I do believe there are decent business ideas in, you know, on Quora or in these these Facebook groups or, I mean, people are complaining about, hey, I use this tool and here's what I hate about it. If you see that over and over and over, well, there might be some opportunity there. Um, but just sitting down and brainstorming, if I'm not 
if a problem isn't smacking me in the face, I have a tough time imagining that I'm going to come up with, you know, a, a brilliant idea um, that I'm not facing day to day. And I think there's this balance. Like I don't, I, I believe in a lot of continuums. You know, I don't believe in the binary. You should always be your own first customer or that uh, you should never be your own first customer. You, mm. should, you know, it's, it's like there's, there can be debate over this stuff. And I think it's just kind of foolish. I do think that if you're building for yourself, you have a leg up, you know, if you're a marketer and you're building marketing software, well, you know, the struggles, but I also think that that can really be a dangerous path. If like I'm a developer and I have this problem, I'm just going to build a product for it. You haven't validated anyone else will use it. You haven't validated anyone else needs it. You haven't validated anyone else will pay for it. And those are three separate things. And so you have to go out and have a lot of conversations, um, before doing that. So, you know, hopefully that, that kind of lends some side. I, I think the, the idea is I'm brainstorming's fun. I have notebooks filled with business ideas, most of them, unless they apply directly to something that I'm encountering or directly to something, you know, a warm niche that a, a friend of mine or my wife or a cousin or someone has like told me about while we're talking. I I think it's it's often tough to think that we're going to come up with some, you know, some brilliant insight in in a brainstorming process. Yeah. So when you're thinking about product ideas, are there any, I guess, like, how are you sort of evaluating them in your head? Do you have like a lit, like sort of a checklist or list of criteria that you're sort of evaluating them against to decide like, you know, this is not something that makes sense for a solo person to try and build, or, you know, this is something that definitely has a potential to be something that you could build by yourself that could actually be profitable. Yeah, I think my criteria today are, are obviously vastly different than what they were a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, just given it where I'm at, you know, in my journey. But if I were, um, you know, back ten years ago, where I was still thinking about, hey, I want to make something that's going to make ten k. You know, probably ten k a month was a goal at that point. Um, a few, even a few years before that, it would have been, hey, I just want something that can make the house payment. And th- those are all different criteria because I, you could build a tiny little, you could build, buy, or adopt a minuscule little WordPress plugin that can generate two or three grand a month, which again makes most people's house payment. For me, that that wouldn't be interesting anymore. But I know, you know, a lot of folks listening to this podcast, it probably would be. Um, so with those, you have a, there's a way more leeway. There's way more abundance of those types of ideas. If I were to say criteria is it needs to make two grand a month versus it needs to make $83,333 a month, which is a 1 million revenue mark. Those are, there's a lot fewer ideas in that in ladder camp, you know? So, so that's, that's where it is. I mean, I think um, all the, the, you know, a lot of the advice that you hear come out of microconf say, or, or the common wisdom of the day of today, you really have to take it with, um, with a thought of who is this coming from and what stage are they at? Because, you know, as much as like, I, I respect a lot of the folks um, from the microconf stage, let's say Jason Freed or, or Chris Savage of Wistia, or, you know, anybody that your listeners would know. But when they give advice, I think, you know, I'm not running a hundred million dollar ARI, you know, we don't know what Basecamp's making, but it's pretty widely agreed to probably doing somewhere around a hundred million and throwing off tens of millions of dollars in net profit a year. And it's like, I don't know that this applies to me. You know, I think some general stuff does, but really idea validation or idea selection would be totally different. And so I I think if you're an individual and, you know, you are looking to build something that's full-time income that I would actually think about if you've never launched anything, never built anything, never supported something, never written marketing copy, never 
dabbed your toe in the water, I would look at, at a small win early, you know, and building something that can do a few thousand dollars a month with maybe the potential to get to that full-time revenue. But I wouldn't necessarily dive right in because there is just more competition there. And so these one-time sale things, whether it's, it can be an, a knowledge product like a, an ebook, or it can be a WordPress plugin or a Shopify add-on or a add-on for Photoshop. I mean, there's all these little one-time sale things that, um, they're easier to build, easier to maintain. There's less competition. They get you a ton of experience. They get you a little bit of money. They get you the confidence that you can do it. And it teaches you something, you know? And this is the stair-step approach is what I call it. If, if people Google stair-step approach to bootstrapping, um, that's the first step of it is just to get out there and get over the fear of launching and get some experience that you can then parlay up into to, to something a little larger. For sure. Do you think when you're looking for ideas like that, there's a benefit to... Um, sort of deliberately trying to choose something that you think has a low cap on what it could make you uh, per month? I don't, I don't know. I don't think about it as much as that as I think about it as what is, where's the traffic source? Where's the traffic source, you know? And where is, with WordPress, it's going to be the, the WordPress repo, right? That you, if you rank for XYZ term, you know it's going to cap at some point. That's, it's not going to do 100 grand a month building a WordPress plugin to help you, you know, integrate with Stripe or to help you, you know, start a classified plugin directory or whatever. Like it's, it's I know it's going to cap somewhere, but probably if I were to guess between one and 10K in general, if you monetize it a standard way. And so I wouldn't, I, you would have no idea without knowing the traffic there. Same thing with, with a Shopify add-on, you know, it's going to be a small, it's not recurring revenue, but it is if you have recurring traffic, if that makes sense. It's one-time purchases, a lot of these. Yeah. Um, but I, so I wouldn't pick, I mean, I had, before I had a single product that made me 10K a month, I had 10 products that each made between 500 and 5,000 a month. And these were products ranging from one-time downloadable invoicing software before there was like FreshBooks. Uh, I had a couple eBooks on random topics that I had acquired from people. I had um, I had a little SaaS app, wedding, a wedding website SaaS app for cu- couples to get their website up. This is kind of before, well, it's really before Squarespace became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was those kind of weird one-off ideas that I either built or acquired and, you know, none of them, I had expectations for all of them of like, oh man, this is going to be the one, this is the new one that's going to go to 10K. And they just never did, but it didn't matter because I had enough cobbled together that it allowed me to buy out my own time and then focus on, okay, now I'm going to do the bigger effort. Now I'm going to build the 10, 20, $30,000 a month um, revenue stream. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess um, the reason I ask is I, I guess in my head, I'm sort of wondering if there's a correlation between like um, the potential upside on something usually and like the amount of effort that it's going to take to get it off the ground at all if that makes sense you know what i yeah. mean like I, if something that makes like two thousand dollars a month is going to be easier to kind of um, get off the ground in your spare time typically than something that has a potential to do a hundred grand a month you know yeah yes i think it does i mean i i think in general the larger opportunities there are more people looking at them there are more people pivoting into them there are more people seeking that number um you know, whether it's because they're funded or whether it's just because they're at that stage. And so it's it's more competitive the the bigger the opportunity and people aren't paying attention. You know, I wouldn't go and personally start an app that's going to do two grand a month anymore. It's not interesting. It doesn't move the needle. It's if I'm going to spend my effort, I'm going to do something up the chain. And so that also implies that 
someone who who does have more resources, who is more experienced, is probably not going to be interested in it. And that's a good thing from yeah. a competitive perspective. You know, you don't need to find a niche with zero competition, but it is kind of nice for your first one to not have to worry about that, you know? And then as you as you want to expand, of course, later, when you get into the 10, 20, 30K and up a month markets, yeah, pretty much most of those have competition at this point, you know? So with competition, this is actually an interesting topic that I actually wanted to to get into. Um, do you think, uh, so sorry, backtracking, I think a lot of developers building side projects are very often intimidated by the fact that there are other products in the space. Like I know, I've known people for sure who have been working on a side project. They're maybe like two months into it, but they're not ready to launch yet. And then they see a product very, very similar launch on like product hunt. And all of a sudden they're like completely deflated. It's like, I better just throw this code base away because someone else is already doing this now. Do you think that's like the right attitude to have? Do you think competition can be a positive thing? I don't think that's the right attitude to have. Um, And it's, it, it, I, competition, if you're in a small niche, is not great because it does just slice slice the pie. You know, if it's only if the market total market is five or ten k a month, which yeah. some apps are, then yeah, it's a bummer. However, I would say it's it's less about the product and it's more about can you learn just enough about marketing that you can outmarket them? You know, you don't have to be the best at everything. You just have to rank one notch higher in in the Google App Store or be able to run your ads a little bit cheaper or be able to acquire customers um, from a channel that they that they are not exploiting. And so, uh, and by exploiting, I just mean, you know, using, optimizing, getting traffic from. So that's more of how I think about it. If it's kind of like, I'm going to build a WordPress plugin and someone built the exact same one um, or something very similar, I would then ask myself, well, do I think I can rank higher than them? Or do I think that I can build the paid add-ons and support it better? Because if you can get out there and it's not about a feature race at that point, it's really just about getting that channel of customers. And, um, you know, who knows, I've seen these things happen where two people launch within months of each other and one just winds up acquiring the other one six months down the line because it gets tiring, you know, and I see that as an opportunity as much as anything. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Do you think, um, do you think like in the software world, competition is a little bit different maybe than it is in, you know, the physical world or like the more traditional world where, um, you know, there's a lot of factors that come into play that might make you choose to go to Burger King instead of McDonald's, even if you think McDonald's is the better fast food restaurant, just because, you know, it's a shorter drive or, or, you know, whatever, there's all sorts of factors, but in the, in the, on the internet, like everything can be reached anywhere. I think, I think sometimes I, I sort of optimistically hope that like, okay, well, if there's like a problem that needs to be solved and there's four apps solving it, maybe one of them dominates, but probably the other ones have some users too. And if the, the pie is big enough, then even those smaller companies or the company or the, you know, the smaller teams kind of working on or whatever, like me trying to bootstrap a competitor in that market, um, will do all right, even without having to sort of necessarily be the best uh, in the market for for everyone. Do you think that's true at all? Or do you think like um, everyone tends to just gravitate to who, towards whoever is sort of, you know, doing the, the best thing? And if that's true, what can you do to be the best product for at least a smaller subset of people in a market like that? Right. Yeah, no, this is a good question. It's a good line of thinking. Um, The answer is it depends on the size of the market. So if we look at the e-signature, the electronic signature market, it is massive. I mean, it's billions of dollars. So 
is there one clear leader? Probably. I think DocuSign is the biggest. But are there then 10 other apps doing 100 million a year or 50 million a year, some huge number? Yeah, there are because the market is enormous. You know, it's the same thing with building an ESP. It's the same thing with building CRM. On the flip side, then we have markets for, you know, whatever tiny little 10K a month SaaS niche we could think up. And in that case, does the, does the winner tend to take 80%? Yeah, and and there's not that much left over, you know. So those are two extremes of like very large and very small, and then there's a bunch of in betweens. Um, you know, uh, I think of um, well, I don't know. There are like there are like SEO keyword tools, and then there's the niche's long tail. You know, there's long tail SEO keyword tools, and that's like a, a little bit differentiated. And I think if you're if you're going to go into one of these smaller spaces, I think the big thing to think about is you either need a unique traffic channel or an advantage in a traffic channel. And that could be, again, I, you know, I come back to there's Google SEO, there's YouTube SEO, there's WordPress plugin repository rankings, there's Shopify app store rankings, there's Magento add-on rankings, there, there's all these ways, and, and there's paid advertising, and there's every marketing channel you've ever heard of having an audience that, you know, you have a podcast and a blog, and you're constantly funneling them in. So there's, there's a bunch of different ways to get this traffic. But if you're going to do it at a low price, it it typically needs to be quasi-free, right? Because you're not going to do paid acquisition for something that's making two grand a month. You just don't tend to have enough enough money. So you either need, you know, a unique channel that you are at least willing to attack to take a crack at um, and and hopefully win that. You either need a unique channel or you need... um, a differentiation. Your positioning needs to be different than the others. And that's that brings me back to your comment of can you just niche down? You know, if, if there's Shopify and they're big, can I build Shopify for hair salons, you know, or Shopify for Amazon sellers or whatever, just niche to some point. And that's where you can't do that if the number one is a beloved product by pretty much everybody. So example, Stripe. <laughs> I think someday someone, you know, aside from Braintree, Braintree is kind of the, the only competitor I could think of. I'm sure there are others, but like Stripe is the number one. And there's not really much reason for us not to use Stripe because if I built a competitor that was really good and was simpler to use and the API was simpler like Stripe in the old days, I just don't know that I would get much traction because they're, they're, they're just killing it and they're doing such a good job. And there's very few, I see very few complaints online, even though Stripe is as big as they are. I don't see people saying, oh man, Stripe's really jumped the shark. Whereas QuickBooks, Infusionsoft, Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera, DocuSign probably, you know, these huge companies that piss off their users and have these fo- entire forums or they have QuickBooksSucks.com is a real domain. Like there's an angle there. There's an angle of, we are not that, here's why we're better, here's how we're different, right? And there's a real angle. And so those are maybe bigger examples than than we need. you and I need to be discussing, but I look at the same thing of like, hey, what are the SEO keyword tools? What are the three big ones? You know, it's Moz, Ahrefs, and um, uh, SEMrush, SEMrush. Are there people, this comes back to the forum Facebook thing we talked about earlier, are there people complaining about those three? Are one of the others handling that? Or is it, or is there a gap somewhere where you can get in and build, you know, a little, a little thing uh, to try to, you know, a, a utility or whatever to get, get in between them? There's danger there, of course, that one of them then implements it and comes in and, you know, swipes you, side swipes you probably by accident. But um, I, I do think there's opportunity even in these spaces that are, um, you know, have a lot of players in them. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Stripe. That's actually an example that um, makes me think about things in a way that I haven't before. Like the, the the idea of like niching down, I think, has always been presented as like, 
you know, a, a viable way to sort of be better um, for some small group of the market, right? Like definitely I could see how you could build a Shopify that's better than Shopify is for this group of people. But with Stripe, it's like, what is the niche within like Stripe users? I can't think of anywhere there's like any meaningful thing that you could do that would make it better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's such a gen- general purpose sort of thing. Um, so it's interesting to sort of look at things from that perspective and think like when you're looking at like the competitors in the market, is is this the sort of thing where there is even like a, a valid niche? And yeah, like I think you're right. Like if you're going to build a competitor to Stripe, I don't think you can count on the fact that like payments is this huge industry. Um, therefore, even the smallest player will happen to get some of the customers and make some money like maybe that works like for ice cream stands on the beach or whatever but i don't think it's going to work uh when everything is just as easy to access you know what i mean and why wouldn't just like the best product win in that case so i think that is pretty interesting to think about stripe has such a strong brand too and this is something most developers don't think about is brand is real you know i mean let's get away from coca-cola and procter and gamble which is what you read in all the branding books Stripe has a killer brand among us, among our people. And it, you they would really need to screw up or I would need to get really frustrated with Stripe in order to not just go with them because I've been we've all been treated so well by by them. And I think I mean if we were to try to think of how would you build a competitor to Stripe, it would have to be well what are Stripe's weaknesses right now? Okay, one they their API is more complicated than it used to be, right? So maybe you could try to build like a super simple version of that. But I wouldn't do that as a solopreneur. Like you need the you get the credibility for people to give you their money. Like you have to go raise funding for this. Like that this would be a terrible business to bootstrap. So I wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a path that we could that we could try to go down. I think you know on this level. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So we talked a little bit about this like whole concept of niching. I'd like to get into a little bit more because... um. Something that I've heard Seth Godin say a lot, um, I'm sure if anyone listening doesn't pay attention to Seth Godin, it's probably a, you know, a source of content worth following. But he talks a lot about like this idea of a, a minimum viable audience and that by trying to build something for a huge group of people, you're really building something uh, for nobody um, because it's just too generic, right? It doesn't solve enough specific problems. There's actually no such thing as the average person. It's just, you know, 
everyone is kind of special in some way. Um, so if you are trying to build something and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, I need to make something uh, and I need to make sure that there's like X number of people that have this problem that would that would pay for this problem, how do you sort of determine what that sort of market size is that you should be you know niching down to attack like how do you prevent over niching you know yeah i mean it's it's a good question i think over niching is hard to do especially if if you're going to tackle a smaller problem where you're like ah, i'm cool with a couple grand a month you know um because the thing you'll find with niching is that the the smaller the niche the more you can charge for it unless you're going to consumers in which case have fun with that. Um, <laughs> I had a couple B2C businesses and they were fine, but they were so price sensitive. But if you're selling to businesses and you're niching down, you can often charge, you know, five times what the the horizontal product is for your solution. You know, if you're, um, yeah, once you niche, if you really hit a pain point, I mean, that's that's the bottom line is is your pricing can warrant that. So I won't say that you can't get too small, but it's pretty it's pretty hard to do that. The other thing is, if you talk to, if you listen to South Godin or if you, if you get an MBA um, or go to business school, they will talk about this top-down analysis of there are this many millions of businesses in the country or in the world, and then this many in my country, and then this many who need this service, and they market size that way. Don't do that. That's a total addressable market. And how, how are you going to, re- you're not going to have advertising campaign. You're not going to run, you know, uh, commercials on TV and billboards and stuff. I mean, that's what that kind of stuff is for. Do it. I, I like to say do it from the bottom up, which is where's the traffic source? The bottom is where are those people? So does that mean like I should look at um, uh, Facebook ads or, or Google AdWords and look at how much volume's there? Yeah, I would probably start there. You can go to Facebook and, and whittle down the audience to be like, okay, how many impressions can I get of this? Or Google AdWords or trying to rank a site in Google or trying to, um, you know, get a plugin. It's really hard to estimate the WordPress plugin repo, but all these search engines, you know, there's when people say search engines, everyone thinks Google, but I've named like six search engines already on this podcast, right? I named YouTube, which is the number two search engine. Amazon itself is a commerce search engine. WordPress is a repo search engine. Every every app store anywhere that has a search function is literally a, a search engine. And so that those are the signals I'd be looking at more than how many total stores are there. It's like if you if you have a million stores that you're gonna try to sell to, but you can't reach any of them except to visit them in person then yeah, your total addressable market is huge and your uh, total reachable market for you as a solopreneur who doesn't want to fly around the country is is minuscule. You know what I mean? So it's like you, you look at the reachable market, not the addressable market. And by reachable, for most of us, that means reachable online in a, in a somewhat sustainable fashion. Building something people want is not enough if you can't reach them in a scalable, relatively inexpensive fashion. And I mean, I say inexpensive because I'm thinking, hey, if you're going to build a 10K a month business, um, you don't have a sales force. You know, you don't hire a bunch of salespeople. You don't have amazing marketing because you can't quite afford it yet. So you need to you need to find those easy kind of easy ins um, in in the niche. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's a bit tricky in the in the early days when you're doing it. Yeah, for sure. I th- something I kind of want to get a little bit of clarity on that you said there that um, I think most developers, myself included maybe know a thing or two about marketing, but they're not marketing experts, right? And they haven't played with all the tools in depth. Um, when you're talking about like the Facebook audience size and the the Google stuff, are you saying that like if I have an idea for uh, some search terms that I want to 
um, rank for, you know, like someone searching for blah, blah, blah. I think I could be the best product for whatever problem they're describing. And there's a way to like use these tools to figure out like how many people are searching for that or how many people fit this like sort of persona that I've created in Facebook ahead of time. And you can use that as a way to sort of determine like, okay, if I was going to make this ad and target at this group of people, then 20,000 people are going to see it. Like that's useful information to have. Um, so you're saying that's something you can do with these tools? Loosely, yes. It's the, I call it like, there's like one hour, 10 hour and 100 hour validation. And one hour is I log into the Facebook ad console and I say, all right, I'm building something for um, example, for like, you know, visual designers in this one state in America. Yeah, you can like drill down and be like, who follows Smashing Magazine and who is on, you know, who who fit, liked Dribble and is located in Minnesota. And it'll give you an approximate number of how many people, that'll be a pretty small number actually if you did it, but you could add a bunch of design resources and see who liked the pages and who who has an affinity for that topic, right? Facebook knows so much about us. And it'll give you a ballpark. Um, and then you can do it for different things. I mean, you could say who likes uh, email marketing and get an idea of how large that is, right? And compare them. Same thing with Google, although the AdWords interface is so brutal these days. I would almost say you want to <laughs> use a tool like SEMrush or SEOmoz, which are unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately are paid tools. But you used to be able to log into the Google t- console and just type in phrases and it would give you ballpark, you know, how many people were searching for those each month. And now it's almost unusable data. Um, but there's, those third-party tools have click data and they allow you to, to kind of look at that stuff. So yeah, that's the one hour market sizing. And it's, is it, is it super accurate? Eh, yeah, kind of, you know, it gives you an idea relative to other things. And then the 10 hour validation is, okay, I'm going to build a landing page. I'm going to write a killer headline. I'm going to then go and try to find these people. And I'm going to either, I'm just going to start talking about, it. I'm going to go on their forums. I'm going to talk on, you know, go on the podcast. I'm going to write articles. I'm going to just talk in person. I'm going to make calls. I'm going to do whatever and just say, Hey, does this resonate? You know? And then the hundred hours when you actually build an MVP and you try to get something in people's hands and seeing if it's resonate. So that's how I think about it is like, no, it's not foolproof to go on Facebook and, and Google and these other places, but it is, it is one data signal that you can then build upon and try to get more certainty without spending an enormous amount of time or effort. Yeah. Makes sense. I think something you sort of alluded to there that I think would be useful to talk about in a little bit more depth is um, I think a lot of developers make the mistake of thinking that marketing is an activity that sort of happens after you're done building the product. Um, and I think, <laughs> you know, based on my experience going to microconf and talking to people uh, building real software businesses, that's like a huge mistake that people uh, make. So what sort of approach uh, would you recommend people take when they're working on a product how should they sort of split their time what sort of activities should they be taking besides actually building the product if they want to make sure that given that there is a market and given that you know like they're they're actually solving a problem that people care about um that when the product is ready for someone to start using it um that they actually are going to be able to get people to use it and that they're not just going to launch it to crickets yeah it is a common mistake um or misstep i wrote a blog post called start marketing the day you start coding and What's funny is now I believe that you should start marketing before you start coding. And by <laughs> by marketing, marketing loosely, what I actually mean is um, if you really want to, it's all about certainty, right? The cone of uncertainty. If you have a gut feeling and you're going to go build something, there's a lot of uncertainty whether anyone else needs it. And if if you then take two, you have a gut feeling and you talk to 10 
other people and you say, hey, would you buy this? You read the mom test so that you do this well, but you ask them a series of questions. Mom test is a book. You ask them a series of questions and you present a price and people say yes and you get five yeses or 10 yeses. Well, your cone of uncertainty is a little clearer. It doesn't mean it's going to be a success. It doesn't guarantee it. may mean you have to pivot. may mean that you got bad data, but still there's some you know, uh, uh, momentum there. And take three, if you do that and then you start writing code and 50-50 during a week, you're writing code and uh, driving traffic to a landing page and you're starting to collect emails and you're starting to get people emailing you saying, wow, this is super interesting. Um, and now you have a list of 200, 300, 400 people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just one more piece of clarity. You know, it's one more layer and it's, and it's another 100, 200, 300 people you can, you can interact with. Now, is this foolproof? Well, of course not. You know, there's all types of ways you can misstep this. I mean, I think... If folks follow Derek Reimer um, on the Art of Product podcast, he did that, did pretty much what I talked about, um, although he he went and later pointed out some missteps that he had made in that process. But he built Level, which was like a Slack competitor. Um, and and it didn't it didn't fly. And he, you know, he shut it down. There are absolutely missteps you can make, but my belief is that not doing any of those is while those are time consuming, I do think they bring you some clarity and they can bring you from a 20% certainty rate of, hey, I think this is actually needed to a 50 or a 60 or a 70% rate, depending on the ravenousness, you know, with which people are saying like, OMG, take my money, you know, yeah. right now type thing. And and there are all types of signals. It's not, you know, we're, I'm an engineer too. I still write crap. I write crappy code now, but um, I, I've been <laughs> writing code since I was a kid. And so I want everything to be black and white ones and zeros. And this is definitely not. And that's a hard part about it is there are a lot of signals, some which will be mixed, some which will be stronger than others. But it's, in my opinion, it's better than no signal at all. At all. Yeah, makes sense. So the goal is just do anything you can to sort of de-risk it, but at the same time, accept that uh, entrepreneurship involves risk, right? Yeah, that's the thing. And you'll never get to 100% clarity on on any of this, really. How early do you recommend like people try to get money from potential customers for um, a SaaS product idea, say? I mean, I've always fallen. This is a. I feel like this is a personal preference. I've covered this like a bunch of times on the podcast, on my podcast, startups for the rest of us, and and we've had questions about it. And there's been Twitter debates, and it's like some people believe that boy, once if you get the credit card number and you charge them a hundred dollar upfront payment, that now they're committed, and if you don't do that, then it's just you know whatever. It, it's not valuable. Um, when I when I validated Drip, which became an ESP as you mentioned earlier, email service provider. I just got verbal commitments, but I got them from people that I know and that if they backed out, it was it would have been a an odd thing, right? They I knew that they their word that they were I said, Are you willing to give this a try for three months at this price once it's live? And it was like, Yep, I will I will do that for you. And that was all I needed. When I came back, I actually believe all of them did it. It may have been I had like eleven, you know, somewhere between eleven and fifteen yeses. And I think most people um uh, almost all of them did it and at least tried it. Now, it didn't work for all of them, right? Some of them got a month in and they're like, yeah, this isn't doing it for me. And it was such an early phase of the process of the of the product that we had to pivot it later. But um, so I don't know, if you're talking to people you don't know and it truly is cold contact, maybe getting a check from them that you don't cash. I think, you know, if you th- think people are blowing smoke, then yeah, you should probably get a little more. But I don't, I never have, and I don't. I don't feel like there's such a hard and fast rule that I would prescribe something to someone. I do think talking about money is important, though. I think saying, "Hey, I'm going to launch this, and it's going to be, you know, um, uh, fifty bucks a month, 
or a hundred bucks a month or whatever. And I think that's important. So that such that they, cause they're not, you're not just asking, would you use this? It's, would you pay for this? Totally. Right. And would you pay X for it? I think that's an important differentiator. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Sort of on the topic of pricing, I think um, I think developers. This is this is sort of like almost a meme at this point. But developers have like a tendency to sort of underprice things. I think uh, typically, like we think uh, a lot of the time that ten dollars a month is like a price that you should ever charge for anything. <laughs> Which I think listening to starters for the rest of us is a uh, something that you typically would recommend people not do. But I think it's sort of interesting to talk a little bit more about why and maybe what some of the price points you should be aiming for should be. So say like you're trying to build something, your goal is you want to bootstrap a SaaS business uh, that's going to be you, maybe like some part-time people helping or something, but your goal is just to build something that can make, say like in the 10 to 50K a month range where it's like you can have like a really, really great living if it goes well, um, but you're certainly replacing your full-time income, you know, even at sort of the worst end of things, but you're not trying to build something like uh, enormous. Um, what I guess like an interesting perspective to look at this from is like how many customers should you be hoping to acquire to sort of get to that MRR? You know what I mean? Is it realistic to think, well, if we get 20,000 customers paying us a dollar a month, um, you know, versus 500 customers paying us uh, whatever a month, what is, what are sort of the numbers that you sort of think about in your head when you're sort of trying to figure out if something you know, is the right fit in that sort of way. Yeah, it's a good it's a good way to couch it. I mean, if if you've never launched an app and you don't know what it's like to to acquire one thousand customers, it is way more work than it seems like. And we're and we're kind of we are um, I think numb to this because of the numbers we see Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TechCrunch and everyone talking about, and we have here tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. And it's like, well, of course I could acquire 1% of that, but no, you can't. It's really, really hard. I mean, we were, oh, I'm trying to think of what Drip was doing when we had a thousand customers and it must've been a hundred K a month or something. You know what I mean? Like we were way, we were a lot bigger than you would think. And so the way I think about it is this, um, as a loose rule, if 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 I want 10K a month and I charge $10 a month, then I need 1,000 customers, right? And if I want 20K a month, I charge $20 a month. That is a painfully low number um, to charge. That will, Your churn will be high. You'll have a ton of support. That's a lot of customers. So I don't like the idea of needing 1,000 customers in order to reach the goal. Therefore... The, the range of 10 to 50K is very wide, actually, because there are a ton of businesses that can get you to 10K. And there are like, it's like a funnel or an exponential decay in the number of businesses that can get you to 50 or 100, if that makes sense. So I, I mean, when I think about getting the, that, that 100 to 200, 300 range, that's a really nice number of customers to have to acquire. But it also depends on... Um, certainly depends on how many, you know, how many users are, do you have access to how many, and what's your, what's your marketing channel like, and what is your um, conversion rate all the way down the funnel. So definitely a thousand is too much. I mean, by the time you're at a thousand, um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of pain to go through. Yeah. It's funny to think about it that way, right? Like a thousand customers, if you're just thinking about that without really thinking about it in depth and you're sort of maybe comparing it in your head to like, 
well, I can get a thousand followers on Twitter, no problem. I should be able to get a thousand customers, no problem. Um, but I think um, when you really analyze a, a lot of this stuff, that is a, a large amount of customers. Like I know, looking through like um, like Bear Metrics has their like open startups, and you can kind of look and see like what are some cus- companies doing and how many customers do they have and stuff. I think Bear Metrics itself is still under a, a thousand customers, and that's kind of a household name at this point, you know. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. That's, that's right. I mean, let's let's run some loose numbers because we're engineers. So let's just throw these out. Like, typically, if you're if you're running a SaaS, and let's stick to SaaS because um, it's easier. The range of of unique visitors to your website in a month who will probably start a trial if you're asking for credit card up front for your trial is between about a half a percent and two percent, and that depends on your price point. So when I had Hit Hittail, which started at twenty bucks a month, it was twenty forty eighty. Is that right? Uh, maybe it was ten. I I can't remember if it was ten or twenty, and if I canceled the ten. But let's say the ten to twenty dollar low end price point—that's your bottom. We were at about two percent unique visitor to trial with a credit card up front. Um, with a tool that's say fifty to hundred a month, I would expect it to be closer to between half a percent and one percent. So for ease, let's just say it's one percent. Okay. So if you get five thousand uniques a month, one percent of that is fifty trials. Okay. Getting five thousand uniques a month that are targeted is non-trivial. <laughs> you know, if you've ever been, like you said, comparing it to Twitter, I get 5,000 views on all my tweets. No, getting 5,000 people to your homepage or to, you know, to, to come is is more, is, is a reasonably tall order. So we have 50 trials. Okay, we've asked for a credit card. The trial conversion rate should tend to be, if you're doing, these are all if you're doing well, these are the reasonable numbers. You should be between 40 and 60% if you ask for a credit card up front. So let's just say 50%, we'll pick in the middle. That's doing good. I mean, that's a, that's a solid product market fit. So now you have 25 new customers per month. That's with 5,000 uniques. Then you're typically going to churn in the first two months. Your churn is higher because a lot of people use the, the first two months as an extended trial. So your first two months, you'll probably churn about another 20% of those folks, give or take. You might churn 30 would be high, 10 would be low. So we'll pick 20. So out of our 25 trials, 20% is five. So now we have 20 people who will who, who are on month three, and then they will churn at your 7% a month or whatever your churn is, right? So let's just, so that's cool. So you got 20 new customers a month. So if you're charging $10, then you are growing by $200 a month. And if you're charging $50, then you're growing by a thousand a month. Is that right? 20? Yeah. 20 times 50 is a thousand. So that, that's the difference. That's the mental math I look at when I do it. And again, those are ranges. Those are my rules of thumb I use. And if you don't ask for a credit card, the numbers are all different and everything, but that gives you an idea 5,000 targeted uniques to your homepage per month. And that's what it boils down to, you know, 200 bucks a month in growth, which if you're at 10 bucks a month, I mean, that that's the kind of, uh, it gives you perspective. That that's again, it comes down to the bottom up versus top down. You know, you because you and I could say, oh, there are a hundred thousand people searching for this term each month, but how many of them are you gonna get to your website? Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, So here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, So you probably know that typically images are the heaviest 
heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So, okay, here's a question for you then, um, kind of about that. I think me personally, the only way that I know how to build a business and I've, I've always wanted to learn how to do it any other way because I think this way is um, is you know doesn't work for everyone is basically being uh, fairly like personality driven like my courses and stuff sell because I've built a reputation and an audience and stuff like that and people know who I am and I think that would probably help me if I tried to build a, a SaaS app too because just more people know me and stuff like that but I think you know the vast majority of uh, people don't have an audience and maybe just don't have that sort of uh, inherent personality characteristic that helps them sort of naturally grow an audience, um, which I, you know, I think is an advantage that I at least have. Um, so for people who don't have an audience and don't really feel like building an audience is something that is going to come naturally to them, like what are the other approaches that they should be looking at in to, you know, sort of get the word out about the thing they're building like paid acquisition or is there some blueprint that like you think people should be paying attention to yeah i mean i i think i'll start by saying mo if you're so selling information products and knowledge products i've done a ton of that i've written multiple books i run a conference which i consider to be similar to that where it's a one-time purchase a lot of it is personality driven i've done video courses i've done i've done all those things and i've done the software as well mm -hmm. and then i know hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs who've done who've done both and tried both and moved from one to the other. Like I knew a dude doing, I forget what they were doing, 100 grand in WordPress plugin launches every couple months. And he was like, yeah, SaaS is going to be easy. And he just got his lunch eat. Like it is a different, it is a, and eventually they figured it out, but completely different. You have no idea how different subscription and SaaS is because if people don't use it, they cancel. If people don't use your ebook, 
they don't they don't cancel they, don't they already yeah. bought it right <laughs> so it is totally different so if you want to start a software product you do not need an audience and if you don't want to build an audience then don't you're going to rely on these other channels and every product i had frankly up until i mean i had 15 products probably ranging like i said from all the way i had an e-commerce side i had a bunch of software and then i had um info and knowledge products none of those really relied on my audience and then it was drip was really the first product i ever had aside from the microcomps and the stuff that really relied on it so what i see as the benefits of an audience if you're going to launch like a SaaS or a software product is you get the early days you get people who are willing to give you feedback and input because they like you they're willing to try it out and you can kickstart the early days but building a sustainable like trying to build a SaaS app to 30k a month just based on people liking you and having an audience pretty much haven't seen it done and the people who i've seen try to do it 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 doesn't again it gives you that initial kickstart like you can get the 5k hey that's great you can get to 10k cool but trying to build something and that's with a big audience where people really respect you um trying to build it purely audience-based becomes a challenge um now there are exceptions where you you have your network and you do web webinars and affiliate stuff and then you're using your network now to build on that but it's just a handful you know in general um most software products long-term are built on these other sustainable traffic channels like organic search in one of the big search engines like paid acquisition like content marketing um, like affiliate stuff the the blueprint depends on the niche right and it depends on where your customers are how the avenues you can get to reach them biggest recommendation i have um well there's two there's a book called traction it's by justin maris and gabriel weinberg and it looks at it's like 25 chapters and each chapter is a different marketing approach and they interviewed experts so for seo they interviewed some seo i don't remember, remember who they interviewed but like they interviewed Rand fishkin or somebody like that and said here's the stuff you know here's how you would think about it and then for paid acquisition they interview somebody who's good at that and audience building they look at that in-person events they just go down the line and so you can kind of take your pick from a buffet of like hey which of these do i want to do and which of these do i think will reach my people and you experiment with them one at a time. Another book I like is called SaaS Marketing Essentials by Ryan Battles. And I've, I've just always liked that book and it's pretty focused. And he's a microconf, you know, bootstrapper type um, and runs his own app. So he has, has good knowledge. And I would actually also recommend, I don't normally recommend my own, my own stuff, but I wrote a book called Start Small, Stay Small, A Developer's Guide to Launching a Startup. It's dated now, it's nine years old, but if for, you know, it's a pretty quick read and there's there's concepts in there about email capture and building email lists and landing pages and um, a lot of stuff that I think is is should be fundamental knowledge for someone who, yeah. who's embarking on this. So those are kind of the three things I would look at. And then when I'm doing it myself, like when I go to launch a new app or go to launch a new brand or whatever, I do go back to all those fundamentals and I just start pulling out which do I think and I which do I think is going to work and I start ordering them which do I think is going to you know have a biggest impact and and start attacking these things one at a time and and see what kind of traction you can get. Cool. Okay, so last question because I uh, want to be respectful of your time and you don't have to give away the secret sauce here, but I know like running a tiny seed, you're doing a lot of sort of selection in terms of you get tons of tons of applicants. I think you're actually opening up another batch soon or recently just did. Um, you're getting tons of all these applicants with their ideas or their businesses that are, you know, off the ground a little bit, but they haven't got to the point where someone could work on them full time. I, th I think that's kind of where you had targeted originally anyways. I'm not sure how much has changed there. Um, but what, what's, what's sort of, 
evaluation are you doing? Are there, are there any like trends that you've seen or things that you think are worth sort of pointing out um, that are common between the ideas that you sort of pick as like, yeah, I think these people will be a good fit. And we th- I think there's potential here uh, versus uh, I don't think this is something, you know, worth investing in or, or worth supporting. Yeah, there, there are some trends. Um, we are opening the, our next application process runs from November one to December one of 2019. And then we'll be, you know, having phone calls and all that with folks in December. Um, and there are signals, although the interesting thing is it does, I mean, there, you know, there are, tons of vertical apps and crazy different verticals. There's tons of horizontal. So there's nothing about that, that that strikes us. The one thing I'll caveat it with is we are investing in SaaS and subscription software that is uh, that we think can grow into a $1 million to say $20 or $30 million ARR business. So we do market size like our bottom. If we don't think it can get to a million, it doesn't make sense financially for us to do it. And um so that's the kind of, but so that's a caveat is like, consider that when I'm saying this stuff, but we really look at, we have this whole criteria. We have about a two page document with a bunch of criteria, but I'll boil it down to summarize. And there's multiple people involved evaluating. So it's not, it's not just me. We have a whole team of folks who are looking through this stuff and talking to founders. But I think of it in terms of three things, really, it's uh, the people, product market fit and pricing. And so the people is the founding team. Typically, typically they don't have many employees because we're early stage and ask questions, you know, have they, have they shipped interesting things? Have they done this before? Um, how much traction do they have? Like, are they doers? Have, are they just thinking about doing this or have they actually shipped code into the wild and they have a thousand dollars of MRR to me that reflects back on, you know, the people as folks who can get stuff done. Product market fit is really just saying, have they built something people want yet? Or are they close to it? And that often is, sometimes it's a revenue milestone, but oftentimes it's your churn goes way down, you know, and you, Mm. and you start, um, retaining people more. And then, yeah, if someone hits 10K, 15K a month in MRR, unless they're throwing a ton of traffic at it, they probably have some type of product market fit, which is not a, it's it's not a binary thing, right? It's a continuum. Um, and then the last one is pricing. And people always kind of raise their eyebrows when I say that. But what I mean is, how price sensitive are your customers? You know, if you are going B2C to directly to consumers or to aspiring entrepreneurs, they are photographers or kind of prosumers, um, there's going to be quite a bit of price sensitivity. And if your average revenue per user, per our earlier examples, is $10, $15 a month, that's tough, right? It's a tough business. Not to say you can't get it to a million, but it, the, the, the question I ask when I talk to people, uh, when I interview them then, is I say, so your average revenue per user is 15 a month. Have you thought about what you're going to do to get that up? And there are some entrepreneurs who are like, absolutely. I view this whole thing as just a way to get into the space. And then I know how to triple it. I'm going to get to 49. And here's how I'm going to do a boom, 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 feature one, feature two, feature three. And those are that's the right answer. You don't need to be there, but you need to have thought about it. Other sure. folks I've asked, and they're like, I don't really know. I think we're just going to try to get more customers. You know, And it's like, okay, this is going to be a tough business if you don't you don't push it past. So that's where pricing and kind of price sensitivity is is that third criteria. There's, of course, 25, 30 more, but um, that's the the high level. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Rob. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and chat with me. Is there anything that you want to point people at or anything else that you want to plug before we wrap up? 
if folks are into, into podcasts, Startups for the Rest of Us, um, we're on episode 465, and we ship every Tuesday morning. Would love to, um, love to connect with you there, as well as I'm on Twitter at Rob Walling. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Rob. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rob. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 125. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.